listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Exodus chapter 2. If you don't, uh, there's some in the, in the foyer. Love for you to take one. If you don't own one, take it home with you. Um, and uh, if not, you have a phone, ESV app, or iPad, you can use those too uh, as we work through this little book. Um, have you ever noticed that the preparation for something, this is kind of a principle that's woven into the fabric of life, that the preparation for something always is more challenging and more time-consuming and more detailed than the thing in which you are often being prepared for. Uh, so, you know, for some of you, you know, you, you went to college, you graduated, uh, you know, you spent all this time and all this effort and all this money. I remember in seminary, you know, all these hours in the library, all these papers, all this Greek, all this Hebrew, all this stuff. And then, you know, the, the day comes and you put the robe on and you're literally on the stage for like three seconds. They're like, Bill Fowler, yay! And then you're gone. You're like, really? All that? And you give me a piece of paper that I could have like printed on my own printer? Like, that's it. All that prep for that. Or some of you, you know, you, you're cooking tonight and you started smoking something on your green something or other like three weeks ago. And you've been looking forward to that. And you're going to eat it in like 11 minutes. All that preparation. Sports, athletics, you know, all this prep for a, a big game that lasts 45 minutes or all these hours shoot, shooting baskets or dribbling this or doing that for, for a short moment. I'm training for a race in March, a marathon, and all these miles that I'm putting on my body. For what reason? I have no clue because I can barely walk today. Um, but I'm doing it, right? And, and, and it's going to be over in, in just a fraction of a moment, right? So quick, all this prep, all this uh, just getting ready for that. And, and that's something that's just, that's just reality. It's woven into the fabric of life. And it's the same with how God equips us, how God prepares us for that which he has called us to. And so what we're going to ask and answer today is this. How does God equip, train, prepare his people for what he's called them to? What does that look like in your life and in mine? That's what we're going to answer today as we continue in our, our study in the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 2. What we're going to see is God's preparation for his man, Moses. What does it look like? And I know that his story is different than yours. You're not, you know, you're not Charlton Heston. You're not the Prince of Egypt. You're not whatever. But there are some commonalities how God is going to equip Moses and how God is going to equip you, Georgia Southern student, you, single mom, you, Gulfstream engineer, to fulfill the calling which he has for you. And so we're going to look at that this morning in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 22. And, and we... we Cracked open this book last week. We opened the first chapter. Kind of, if you're a guest, if you're kind of uh, online and you haven't watched before, here's kind of where we've been, real quick. People of God are slaves in Egypt. Didn't start out that way. They started out, they were flourishing and it was great. And then there's a new Pharaoh and he starts persecuting them and he starts oppressing them. He makes them slaves. And then he goes beyond that. He's trying to squelch their growth. So he starts killing or trying to kill all the newborn boys. That doesn't work because he can't get the midwives to buy in. And so now he's actually challenged and told his people, You see a Hebrew boy throw him in the Nile. You see a Hebrew baby, throw him in the Nile. And you can imagine what living in that is like. And when a lady finds out she's, she's expecting and normally there's joy, but now there's fear because if it's a girl, okay, we're okay. But if it's a boy, what are we gonna do? 
and soldiers constantly coming through Goshen and, and checking huts and, and looking at the baby to make sure it's a boy or a girl. And if it's a boy, ripping it from his mother arms and tossing it into the water for the crocodiles or to drown or whatever. Imagine living then. And so the people are crying out, God, do something. God, save us. And he is. He's preparing a deliverer, but he's not ready. And so we're gonna see his preparation and we're gonna see ours in it. So here's where we're going. Here's the timeline of the life of Moses, all right? Uh, he lives 120 years, 120 years, long life. Okay, the first 80 years is preparation for the last 40. It's a lot of preparation. It's a lot of prep for 40 years uh, and he's not even gonna get to get what God is calling him to until he's 80 years old. And so we're gonna work through these first 80 years. 22 verses, 80 years. This chapter's just gobs and gobs of time. It's just like fast forward. But there's gonna be three movements, three kind of, this, this chapter kind of breaks into three divisions. And in each division, I wanna highlight some, some preparation, something that goes on there and it's probably similar to something you're gonna, you're gonna look at. So three phases of his preparation and really some for us too. So the first phase is gonna be his first 40 years. And I've entitled it, this is my title, you can name it whatever you want as you study it. I've entitled this first phase of preparation, Home Sweet Home. All right, let's jump in and let me unpack it and then we'll come back. Now, a man from the house of, of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, underline that word fine, she hid him for three months. So you got a couple details here that are significant later. He's a Levite, which means this is gonna be a significant group of people because they're gonna be the priests and the, uh, and the Levites and the tabernacle, which is where this whole thing is going. Uh, but there, there's a couple that are they're from the tribe of Levi. They already have two older children, we'll find out, a guy named Aaron and a girl named Miriam. But they are pregnant again, and again, no ultrasound, so they're like, is it a boy or is it a girl? And after nine months, they, it is a boy. Imagine the fear they know now this baby's life is in danger, but they saw that he was a fine child. Now that's not like, he's fine, okay? That's not that, okay? Um, some of your translations say healthy, some say beautiful. Um, the idea is this. The word is the Hebrew word tov, which just means good. It's a generic word. It's the same word that's used in the creation narrative that God saw that everything was good. That God created and it was good. And the idea here is that Moses' parents see this boy not as a curse, but he is a blessing. He is a gift. He is good. And because he is good, they are not going to obey the edict of Pharaoh and kill this child. And they're not going to, they're going to do whatever they can to keep him from being killed. And so the writer to the Hebrews puts them in the hall of fame and faith and says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months because of his parents, because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They have a big view of God. They have a small view of man. And so they're gonna do all they can to protect this good gift. He is good. But it comes to a point where you can only keep a baby quiet for so long. Because you can imagine, some of you are parents, you're like, you, your life is not in danger and you can't keep them quiet. Imagine trying to keep a colicky baby quiet. And even if you can keep this baby quiet and muffled and, and, and nobody knows he's, what's gonna happen when he's 18 months and he's starting to wander around and hitting everything with a stick and he wants to go outside, but he can't go outside because if they, if they see an 18 month old boy wandering outside, they're gonna know that, that they disobeyed and they're gonna grab him and throw him in the Nile. So what do you do with that tension? Eventually, uh, they just can't hide it anymore. And so when she can hide him no longer, she takes and makes a basket. And the word for basket here is the same exact word that's used in Genesis 
an ark. Which remember, the ark saved the people, right? This basket is going to save the Savior. And so she daubs it with bitumen and pitch, which shows the care in what she's putting into it. She's making it waterproof. She's making sure it floats because her heart is going into this basket. And it comes a point where it's done and you can imagine the tears in her eyes and the care in which she tucks this precious little newborn in. And he's probably looking up at his mama and she's crying. But this is, this is all she's got and she's entrusting him to the Lord. And so she she puts the lid on and she puts it in the dangers of the Nile, which is Nile is not like a creek. The Nile is huge and it's got crocodiles and it's got all sorts of dangers. And she puts him in the reeds by the river and she's like, she can't even watch. So she tells his, her, his sister Miriam uh, to stand at a distance. So she does, she stands at a distance to know what will be done to watch what would happen. In verse five, we see, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. Now, if you, were, if you were her sister, his sister, the last people you want to find this basket is someone who's related to Pharaoh because Pharaoh is the one who's killing all these children. So you would imagine that his daughter would be on board with that. And so that's the last thing that you want to happen. But remember, the king's heart is like channels of water in God's hands. He turns it as he wishes. And so uh, she comes down to bathe while the young women walk beside the river and she sees the basket. She probably hears the baby crying. Uh, and so they, they go and take it and she opens it and she sees the child and behold, he's crying. And she took pity on the baby. See, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And Miriam, she's sharp. She's quick now. I don't know how old she was, eight, 12, whatever. But she runs up like, your majesty, a baby. <laughs> Congratulations, right? You need, you need someone to take care of it. You need a babysitter. So I, so I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? That's a great idea. That's fabulous, Pharaoh's daughter says. She says, go. And so who do you think she's gonna go get? The girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So she, the woman took the child and nursed him. I mean, think about how awesome this is. Now, she no longer has to be afraid and muffle the cries and keep the baby in the house. There's complete freedom, no fear, because this baby is now protected by Pharaoh himself. But on top of that, she is getting paid to take care of her own kid. Some of your mothers, you remember waking up three in the morning, changing diapers. It was bad, and, it, and, you, were, and you were not getting, at least if you got a check every Friday from the government, you'd be like, okay, I'm working for my wages here. Think about that. She's getting paid to take care of her own child. That's the graciousness of God. But eventually, she's not gonna be able to keep him. She knows this, but it's still God is, is doing something. Verse 10, and so when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know which daughter. Uh, we think maybe uh, this is well, uh, one of the Pharaoh's daughters named Hashiput or something like that. Um, and she, if, they, if, that is the, if that's the correct daughter, she actually never had a son of her own. She actually became Pharaoh, the second female Pharaoh ever. Uh, she was the daughter of Thutmose the first. Uh, she was a very strong-willed woman, so that makes sense if this is her because she's willing to blow off her daddy's edict. But whoever it is, he's, tr he's takes, taken into Pharaoh's house where he's given it basically an Ivy League education, trained in law and diplomacy and sciences and math. He's getting the best of the best. And here's the beauty, that the deliverer and the savior and the of Egypt, I mean, of, of the Hebrews and the destroyer of Egypt is actually being trained by Pharaoh 
under Pharaoh's nose with his money. And he doesn't even know it. Right? That's the beauty of what God is doing here. Um, that's phase one. That is home sweet home. There's a couple, couple things I want to highlight to you about this. A couple, really two, I think, that are relative to us. Okay, here's the first one. Never underestimate the power of a godly mama. Do not undervalue that. And here's what I mean about this. Moses is only at his home three, four, maybe five years, till he's weaned probably, right? But in those five short years, his mama is able to ingrain some principles and some truths and some character into him that impact him way down the road. Because he's getting 35 years of Ivy League Egypt, maybe five years with mama. And when the time comes when he's 40 years old and he has a choice to be a Hebrew or to be an Egyptian, what does he do? He chooses to be a Hebrew. For the writer to the Hebrews says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he is looking to a reward. Where does he learn that perspective? Not from Pharaoh's daughter. She's got four or five years and she's able to remind him who he is and what God's calling him to. And don't forget that you are a Hebrew and don't forget the true God of the the Israelites and all this stuff. And it counteracts everything that he's going to, they're gonna try to teach him in Egypt. It is significant. And I would say, do not, parents, underestimate the power of a praying mama, of a praying dad, of teaching precious truths, especially at an early age. Those first few years, y'all, gotta be super intentional. And I know it's challenging because sometimes, you know, you're, you're both working or whatever, but if you can be intentional and, and make sure in those years you are ingraining those principles, you, you don't know what they're going to do down the road. They're hugely significant. And the world doesn't honor being a mama, the world doesn't honor necessarily being a dad. You've got to go out there and be something. But God sees and God uses, especially those early times, got to be super intentional. Got to be engaged, reminding of the truth. And even at the early age, teaching your children to honor your father and mother, to follow you, to trust you, because it's going to give them a big view of God and they'll be able to follow and trust the heavenly father. And what's interesting too, in these first two chapters, just as a side note, is in a very male dominated culture, especially Egypt, who are the ones who have the most impact in these first two chapters? It's the ladies. Chapter one, the midwives. Chapter two, Miriam and Jochebed, his mama. And I think there's just a reminder there that in, in, in God's economy, all of us have a place and all of us have an impact and all of us have value. And yes, there's distinction in roles, but do not underestimate these ladies because they're changing the world. And it reminds me of about 1,500 years later, there's a guy who shows up and he's got a bunch of women following him and they have a huge impact too, as Jesus. All the Marys and then even in the early church, you got Priscilla and Aquila, probably Priscilla's the girl. You got Phoebe, you got all these people. Everyone has a role to play and has an impact and we see it the most powerful man in the Old Testament and he's there because of a couple ladies. I think it's significant as a reminder. And here's another principle for us, just very, just very where we're at, is what we do with children matters. It is not babysitting what we do over here. It is significant, teaching simple principles, praying for these kids, teaching them songs, teaching them the stories of the Bible. 
what we do during the week with the, the kids in the neighborhood, hugely significant. And you don't know what will come of that 15, 20, 40 years from it. You just do not know. But I tell you, it matters. This is why we love children in this room. I know some people are like, oh, there's kids in here. We need to get the kids out because the kid's squirming in front of me. No, we need that kid in and we need you out because that kid is the future of the church. And we want them to be here. And they're not bothering me, I promise. I promise they're not bothering me. And if they're bothering you, I'm sorry, but, but the kids matter. And so we, we need to be engaged here. And it's why we're purposeful with the children during the week and on Sundays. Uh, and, and as a side note, if you're, if, you're, if you're that guy or gal like, the kids these days are so bad, blah, 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 blah. Well, stop complaining about it and get involved with it and make a difference then. Go next door and come on a, sun, on a Thursday afternoon or a Thursday morning and start making a difference in some of these kids' lives instead of complaining about how bad it is because you don't know the value of those, those early years and teaching and training, uh, pointing these kids. So that's, well, that's one side of the home sweet home. Here's the other side. And this is the side I think that really is, is that's kind of a you know, very narrow uh, application. Here's a broader one. Moses was discipled and trained by his mom. Moses was also discipled and trained by Egypt. And I know we're like, oh, that's horrible. But is it? Because who's gonna be the one who knows the Egyptian court better than anyone? Moses. Who's gonna be the one who can relate to the Egyptians better than anyone? Moses. Who's gonna be the one who knows how Egyptians think better than anyone? Moses. Right? He's given the best education in their world because that's where he is going to be ministering and that's the where he's gonna have some impact. See, your, your circumstances, which God orchestrates, that is often what he uses and he equips you for your calling. Moses has credibility in the Hebrew world and he has credibility in the Egyptian world and God is gonna use them for movement for his kingdom. That, that's what's going on here. And the same is true for you. You have experiences, you have education, you have circumstances that are unique to you that fit your calling. I've told you before, I didn't learn to preach in seminary. I didn't. Because I go to seminary and seminary doesn't teach you to preach. Seminary teaches you how to think. Where did I learn to preach? Where did I learn to communicate? Because I grew up, hated public speaking, nervous about it, not good at it. I learned to communicate and I still got room, tons of room to grow. But I learned to communicate for six and a half years teaching first graders to kick a ball. Because if you can get a bunch of first graders to kick a ball and then line up without destroying themselves, then you can conquer the world. <laughs> right? If you can teach a bunch of fourth graders how to dribble a soccer ball, or better yet, a real sport, hit a baseball. Sorry, I had to get that knock in, I know. Then you can do anything. If I can communicate with a second grader, I can communicate with you. That's the idea. And that's where I learned to communicate, right? It had nothing to do with seminary. I didn't know that. I didn't think God was gonna, I would never in a bazillion years even wanted to work at a church, let alone think I was gonna work at a church. Yet here I am. It's part of my equipping. It's part of my preparation. Didn't see it, but here it is. And God uses your circumstances and your education and your story for your calling. And that's important because too many of us look around and we're like, man, if I could only just, if I got to do what they got to do, then I would. If I had their spouse, if I had their education, if I had their money, if I had their gifts, if I was as tall as them, if I was whatever. 
right? And instead of asking and saying, if only, if only, start asking, what do I have? Because that is often what God is going to use. It's not about getting a bunch of folks to be like the other folks. It's about you using your unique story and your education and your circumstances. And then you can use those and minister in that way. It's not about getting a bunch of folks to go work at the church or go off to some place foreign. Although some, some of you may get called to a foreign nation and that's awesome. But that's not the whole point. We don't want a bunch of people working at the church, quite honestly. Right? We want you out there because if you can get credibility as Mr. Engineer or Mr. Administrator, Mr. Creative Person here, Mr. Web Designer, Mr. if you have passion and have credibility in that world and people are like, man, he's really good at that. He's, she's really awesome at that. And, and then you show passion there and then you show passion towards spiritual things. It gives the spiritual things credibility because you're, you're passionate about this and you're good at it and they're passionate about this. Well, it must be important and maybe it's true and you can get some movement into the kingdom where you're you can't do that if everyone works at the church. That's the idea. So wh- where have you been? What is your story? What is your education? How are you wired? Is that creating movement in the kingdom? That's what being the church is, right? I love the old quote by Eric Little. I don't know if you're, you know, all you sports folks, uh, maybe Chariots of Fire, maybe some of you saw Eric Little was a Scottish runner, went up to become a missionary, in China, and he uh, won the uh, Olympics um, in the 1924, I think, Paris Olympics. He won the 400 meter, even though he was a 100 meter runner, but he didn't run the 100 meter because it was on a Sunday and he was a strict Sabbatarian. But anyway, he, he made, he, the famous quote that he kind of, everyone knows is he says, God created me with a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Love that. Some of you need to realize God made you fast. And when you, when you fulfill that fastness, God made some of you slow too, just so you know. Um, but when, and when you, when you are in that world, it's just as spiritual and holy as this. When you're feeling his pleasure, when you're fulfilling what he's called you to do, because he's equipped you for it. And that's what we want to be. So you got to ask the question, what, do, who, what has God given me? Where has God put me? Because God uses people where they are. That's not a, I didn't create that principle. God uses people where they are. Not always as they are, but where they are. You're gonna get, we'll deal with the as you are in a little bit, right? So how has God uniquely prepped you? How has he equipped you? And how can you use that to create movement towards the kingdom? You say, I didn't have great parents like Moses. Great, then you have an even more platform to share with these kids who grow up with one parent or no parents. I didn't go to college. Great. Then you have even more uh, credibility in this group over here that, that's a bunch of blue collar folks that they, they don't care if you went to Harvard or Georgia Southern or whatever. They just, what is your story? And so you need to figure that out. You need to start praying. You need to get into this community and ask people, hey, what do you think? What do you see? What have you been? Uh, that's, that's how this works. But that's home sweet home. A couple things to think about there, right? Let's move to phase two in which I have entitled it, that went well. All right. Uh, this is, is kind of a, a one event piece in his life that's kind of a hinge of what's gonna happen next. Uh, let's pick up uh, in verse 11 and see what happens. Did that one well. One day when Moses had grown up, he's strong now, by the way. He's smart, he's educated, he's got some influence. He goes out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. All right, he is 
God, the way God put him together, the way he's wired up is he's wired up as a deliverer. He moves, he's a, he's a man of action, right? Which is great, it's a strength of his. But how many of you know that your strength can also be your weakness, right? He's super gifted, he's super strong, he's super all these things, but he's also green. He is raw, right? And so he has some, God has some work to do in him. So verse two, I mean, verse 12, and he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. This is a premeditated action. Understand, he looks to the right, he looks to the left and he goes all Luke DeBrasi swims with fishes, right? He's, he whacks him. He tries to deliver in his own strength and he kills one of the, he, one of the Egyptians, right? And the next day, he goes out and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Why, why are you guys fighting your brothers? And they say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Good question, because no one had yet. God hadn't spoke yet. God hadn't let him yet. Either way, he said, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses is afraid. He thought, uh-oh, everyone knows. You may have looked to the right and looked to the left, but you didn't look too well, buddy. Because everyone knows, and guess who also knows? Pharaoh knows. And so when Pharaoh hears it, he seeks to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, about 200 or so miles to the east. And he sat down by a well. And you can think at that moment, when he said, that went well, he's thinking, I'm a failure. I've blown it. It was all for nothing. What am I gonna do now? Right? He, is, he is a man without a country. The Egyptians don't want him. The Hebrews have rejected him. Right? He is alone. But he doesn't know that that's all part of the prep. That's all part of what God is planning. Right? He may have the instincts of deliverer and that's how God put him together, but he is not ready to deliver. He lacks several things. He lacks patience, he lacks humility, he lacks a theological development of who God is and what he's calling him to. And so remember, God uses you where you are, but not always as you are. And so he's got some prep work, right? He's about to enter a course that he didn't sign up for, but that's a prerequisite. It's called Wilderness 101. And he's gonna get a PhD in it, right? And and this is what's significant. This is what you gotta get. It's not just about gifts. It's not just about abilities. It's not just about experience. Those are a piece of your preparation, but it is bigger than that. And this is why it's important. In the church, we love a, a just a per, cult of personality. This person, this one guy, we want to follow that person and that do their Bible studies. And, and we love someone with gravitas. And that's why it, when we hear of someone that gets saved that's famous, we're like, yes, we needed Kanye to become a Christian. Now Christianity is cool again because Kanye is a Christian, right? And, 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 and what happens is when that is the case, what we're saying is, yeah, God couldn't really do anything until he got someone famous because God really needs fame. He needs famous people. He needs really gifted people. But does God really need that? I mean, if that's the case, then who gets the glory? God? See, if, if, we, if our attitude is, oh, we just need the most wealthy and powerful, we need Bill Gates to become a Christian. Because if Bill Gates becomes a Christian, then all his resources, he can start churches and he can start this. And, and wouldn't that be awesome? Think about all we could do if we could just get Bill Gates. 
But then what happens if that, if that does happen? Then we're like, see, we just needed money. God needed the money and then we could really accomplish what we needed if we could just get the money. Or if it's a person just of influence. I mean, we just, if we could get Tom Brady to become a Christian. Think about the impact. Think about the influence. I can tell you, I don't think it's gonna happen. Tom Brady is probably the Antichrist. I'm not sure, but I'm close. Okay, I got my eyes on him, right? But if he does... Then what will we say? See, we just needed someone powerful. We just needed someone of influence. We needed six Super Bowl rings. Not gonna get seven, Cliff, sorry. We need someone that had power. That's what God's doing with Moses. If Moses is a powerful Egyptian and, and all of a sudden he comes in on the scenes, what they say is, see, we just needed someone of power. We needed someone with some, some influence and some credibility. That's what we needed. So God says, no, it's not. So he takes him out of Egypt and he takes him away from everything that he could trust, his education, his money, his influence, his power, his authority, his comfort, and he dislodges them from every, all of them. And now he's alone. He's alone. He's failed. And that's exactly where God wants him at Wilderness 101, a course that we all need to take. And I know we don't like being alone, but there's something about being alone that you're forced to face yourself, to see your strengths, your weaknesses, your failures, to face your mortality. I binge watched a show a few, few weeks ago on Netflix, great show, it's called Alone. It, it, the premise of the show, is, it's pretty awesome, is they take 12 individuals, they drop them in the Arctic and they say, Go. They get 10 items to, to, that they choose that they can survive with. And basically the last one standing gets a half million dollars. And I'm like, it ain't worth a half million dollars. I can tell you right now. I've but it's, it's fascinating that some of these folks go home because they can't stand being alone anymore. They're just going crazy with just themselves, facing their mortality, facing all their thoughts and just not being able to talk and stuff. And, but it's, it's actually a healthy thing for some of us sometimes to have to face that. Moses is facing that. He needs to be taught some humility. He's gonna learn it. He needs to be taught some patience. He is going to learn it. And some of you, I mean, you're in, you're taking this course right now. You're not in Wilderness 101, you're in Wilderness 104, Maybe for your own decisions, maybe because it's God's timing for you, maybe it's just he's getting you ready. And what I would say is this, stop trying to drop the class. Some of you are trying to get out of the class. Drop ad, when's drop ad? And instead of, of trying to drop it, try to ace it. Try to learn what God is trying to teach you. Maybe you're there because of your own failure. Failure is a great preparer for your calling because it teaches you humility. It teaches you dependence. It teaches you, duh, this is what happens when I go this way instead of going this way. You can learn from your mistakes. It teaches you about yourself. And the beauty of failure is you're in good company because everybody in here is, is that. It doesn't have to limit you. Failure can teach you. It doesn't have to limit you. Be encouraged. If you're like, man, I, I, I got a divorce. I did this. I was this when I was in college and I wasted all these years. I, whatever it is, whatever your background is, do not let it limit what your calling and what your future is. It doesn't limit Moses. And I can guarantee you, most of you did not go out and commit premeditated murder. Think about this. 
This is not just some guy that like, okay, I had a couple parking tickets and I blew Pharaoh off. He killed someone on purpose. And he becomes one of the greatest people in the Bible. So what's your excuse? Well, I didn't go to college. So? Either did Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's gonna become the high priest. There's, there, this is the point of the gospel. This is why Jesus dies, so that you don't have to be guilty for your sin and for your failures. So that you can cast all your failures on him. He takes the punishment. He takes your sin. He takes your wrath. And now if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone. Don't let your failures limit you. Let them teach you and train you and equip you for what is next. Right? Stop trying to drop out of the class. Stop trying to get out of it. And start trying to learn from your failures, from your that went well moment. So we got home sweet home, we got that went well, and then the last phase of his training, and maybe my favorite, I've entitled it middle management. Middle management, and he's there for 40 years, right? Let's see what happens. He sat down by the well, remember, at the end of verse, of verse 15, and a, and a careful Old Testament reader, especially the original audience, something's gonna, they're gonna, that's gonna, remind them of something. The well in the, in the Old Testament is, is basically the equivalent of christianmingle.com, okay? This is where you find your wife. So you wanna find a wife, go to the well, right? Remember, Isaac, where's he find his wife? At the well. Jacob, where's he find his wife? At the well. Moses finds his wife at the well. If some of you wanna find a wife, open a store called the well. There you go, there's the, there's the application, right? This is, by the way, in John chapter four, when Jesus sits down by the well and the Samaritan woman comes and the apostles are like, what are you doing, Jesus? Right, because she's been married like 58,000 times already. And so that's, that's why it's so shocking to them because the well is christianmingle.com. But it's, by the way, she becomes the bride of Christ, doesn't she? Because, because she becomes a follower of Jesus. Right? He finds a wife at the well. But that's, that's the significance there. So he's sitting by the well and the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water uh, and, and filled the troughs of the water of the father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away, which is apparently what happens almost every day. The girls get there early and these bully shepherds come in, but now you have someone who's willing to move and he have someone who is the deliverer. And so Moses stands up and he saves them. He goes all Cobra Kai on them and he drives them away. And then he serves them. He serves these seven women, which is unique for not only a man in that culture, but especially for a prince of Egypt. And so they come home to their father, Ruel, who's also called Jethro. And he says, how is it you've come home so early? Usually it's like you, don't, you get to the end of the line, right? And they said, an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He fights like an Egyptian. He, they think he's an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. Notice that word delivered, by the way, which is what he is. That's what God's gonna use him. He delivered, he delivered us from the hand of the shepherd and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he's like, y'all, you left him there? There's only like three men in the whole wilderness and you leave the one available guy that's willing to work? I mean, come on, go get him, bring him here. Let him eat bread, right? Bring him to the house. And then, and basically, between this verse and the next verse, you skip like 40 years. And Moses was content to dwell with them, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner far land. I mean, that's like, that's 40 years. I'm 47. That's like almost my whole life in one snap. 
But what you have to understand, it takes place in that one snap as we find out next week that Moses for the next 40 years spends his time in middle management. He becomes a shepherd. He takes care of not only, he doesn't even take care of his sheep that he owns. He takes care of his father-in-law's sheep. Which by the way, if you remember from Genesis when, when we talked about this back in the spring, what's the one job that Egyptians hate? Shepherds. Remember Joseph tells his brothers, don't tell Pharaoh your shepherds. They're an abomination. So what's one way to get the Egypt out of Moses? Make him the very thing that the Egyptians hate. And he spends 40 years taking care of someone else's sheep in obscurity. No one knows who he is. No one cares that he was the prince of Egypt. No one, just obscure. How great is that? He could, if he was living in Egypt, he would have married some famous Cleopatra and the paparazzi would have been there and they would have made him a kind of one of those kind of combo names, Brangelina or Harry and you know, Megan. And he would have been this famous guy leading uh, building cities and leading armies. Instead, he marries a country gal and he takes care of stinky sheep in obscurity, right? And don't miss what God is doing here. You think that's a wasted amount of time? It actually is not. It's brilliant, it's brilliant because what's he going to be doing for the next 40 years, right? He's going to be shepherding God's sheep and they're going to complain and they're going to do dumb things and they're going to need to be cared for and they're going to need to find water and he's going to need food just like sheep. Not only that, he is now spending 40 years learning the land of Midian. Guess where he's going to be wandering for 40 years? The land of Midian. Who better to, to, to lead the people to where water is and where uh, green pastures are than a guy who's been there for 40 years? Not only that, he has a mentor and his father-in-law named Jethro, who's a high priest of Midian, a follower of the one true God. He's actually related to Abraham through Ishmael. So this is like a, a guy who actually is a follower of the one true God, even though the, the scripture hadn't been written yet, but he's gonna teach Moses all he knows about shepherding and he's gonna teach him all he knows about God. And he's gonna even come up after, he's gonna mentor him how to lead the people. He gets a, a, a mentor, he gets a wife who's gonna teach him a couple things in chapter four, right? God is just shaping this guy for what's to come. And he's teaching humility and obscurity. Obscurity is a great preparation for your calling. And we live in a culture that everyone wants to be the quarterback and no one wants to be the backup. But God loves a backup. That's why Nick Foles won the Super Bowl. Amen. God, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And let me encourage you, if you're just like stuck and you feel like I've been doing this for 12 years and I don't know what's going on, it's okay. Obscurity is a great training ground for what God may have for you, where you get to be mentored and learn and observe. And when you can serve in a place that's below your status, even better, because you're following the master who gets on his knees and pulls out a towel and washes nasty feet. Because God is opposed to the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And, and younger folks, I know there's a tension to go do and be now and get at this and be in charge of this. You need to learn to sit in some, a place for longer than 12 months because just to master any skill takes years. And we, what we see is a bunch of folks that are leaving a job every 18 months and they never actually get good at anything and learn anything good enough where they can master it because we're so anxious and we want to be out there and everyone else is accomplishing. Be willing to be obscure, to sit in that. Right? You don't know what you're going to learn. 
You don't know how God is going to use it. Don't be in a rush. Some of you are 19 years old and you don't know what you want to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do with my life? No 19-year-old knows what they want to do. When I was 19, I thought I wanted to be Tom Cruise flying an F-15 or F-16 or whatever. All right? Still kind of want to do that. I don't know a little bit. I want to be Top Gun Part 3. Yeah, there you go. That's it. You, it's okay. You know what you need to do while you're just in obscurity? Just be faithful. Just be willing to be faithful. And God will take you where you want, he needs you, where he wants you. But he's more worried about who you are than where you are. He'll get you where he wants you. He'll get Moses to Egypt and get him back to the land. He wants to develop who you are. Don't be in a rush for everything. Be willing to be obscure. Not idle. I didn't say idle. I said obscure. Be willing to move, but just move in obscurity. And don't forget, okay, almost every great saint of God spent time in Wilderness 101 and in obscurity. Moses, 40 years. Joseph, how many years was Joseph in prison before he was elevated to the second most powerful world? King David was anointed king and then spent 15 years on the run before he actually became the king, living all over the place in caves, right? Uh, Don't forget the Lord Jesus spent 30 years in obscurity in a carpenter shop before he shows up uh, and starts his ministry. It's a principle of obscurity that's significant in your preparation. There's a lot there. Um, I, I don't know where you're at. I don't know how God's gifted you, wired you. Here's what I do know. You are at where he wants you to be by his providence, gifted how he has equipped you, fearfully and wonderfully made. So get into the community and figure it out and then go and feel his pleasure, right? He redeems, he rescues, he uses. That's what he does. And you don't have to be me and I don't have to be you. And that's the beauty of the church. So go figure it out and have an adventure. Remember the end of Nemo? Go have an adventure. Go have an adventure. God is a God who puts us on adventures. Go do it as he has called you to. If you need help with that, that's why you have pastors. That's why you have community group leaders. We got some folks in the back that'll pray for you. If you feel some challenges, we'd love to walk with you through that. That's what we do, right? But just don't sit there and be like, I don't know, all right? Well, then you're not gonna know later. So let's start getting some movement and seeing where God's called us. Why don't you stand, we'll sing, uh, and then we'll go. And this time is just a time for you to talk to God, let him speak to you, impress upon your heart, pray, whatever it is, whatever's appropriate. That's why we get this time uh, after we we study the word. Father, I thank you for uh, Moses and for your calling him and and just giving us an example of of one of the many ways in which you work. I just pray specifically, you have... uh, fearfully and wonderfully made every single person in this room uniquely. Uh, You have a calling for them. Some will be public, some will be private, but whatever it is, uh, let us us discover and walk with you in that and and see you use us for your glory and point people to you uh, that we would let our light shine in a way that you are glorified. I pray in Christ's name.